that Jesus is resurrected. Like, um, I, I know that we celebrate Easter, and I know that we proclaim that Jesus is alive, but that's a really hard reality sometimes to wrap our brains around. We've been taught it, right? Christianity has taught us, we've been raised in the church to know that Jesus is alive, um, but if we just know what we have been taught and we don't actually believe or live out that reality, we're missing something. Um, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church um, about all kinds of things, but one of the things that he realized that they were misunderstanding. One of the things that he realized they didn't quite fully grasp in the way that they should uh, was the resurrection. Um, and so he wrote an entire chapter to them on the resurrection, and uh, he wanted to dispel a few myths that they had um, and confirm in their hearts not just that which they'd been spoon-fed, yes, Jesus is alive, but actually to encourage them to own the truth and live the truth of the resurrection. Because it didn't just mean something for Jesus, it means something for the believers who are alive today. Uh, and, and it gives believers who are alive today a hope for those that have passed away in faith prior to them. And so uh, Paul kind of uh, spends, uh, well, one chapter, and I forget how many verses it is. It's a rather long chapter, 50, 58 verses, yeah. Uh, 58 verses expounding upon the resurrection and what it has to do with Jesus, what it has to do with uh, people who've already died. These are good questions, right? What does the resurrection have to do with people who are alive? Like, how is that going to affect us? Uh, and then uh, my favorite is the last part of, of the chapter, and we'll get to that part at the end of the message. Uh, but it's my favorite. I just think it's humorous. Um, so uh, we'll get there in just a moment. So if you want to follow along, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 we're going to read it today together, and it's, um, it's going to be on the screen. I'm missing the back of my remote. I'm not going to get electrocuted, am I? Jim, was that some sort of... Just try it. Just try it? I don't know. Oh, it's back there? Okay, as long as I don't get electrocuted, we're fine. Um, so we'll go ahead and, and uh, pray and then read 1 Corinthians 15 together, and then we'll talk about it as we go. Lord, um, uh, when we pray to you... We are not praying to a dead God. We are praying to an alive God, and we are thankful for that. Would you help us understand what that means? Would you help us um, apply the truth of the resurrection to our lives? Would you help us live in that reality? Um, because if we really truly live in the reality of the resurrected Lord, it means so much will change about the way that we live. Uh, would you help us wrestle with that this morning? Uh, would you reveal your truth to us, and would you encourage us? And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, which was ultimately confused about the resurrection. There were people in the church of Corinth who did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, it is like a, they then they cannot be Christians, right? Because part of Christianity is realizing that Jesus rose from the dead. So he wants to speak into this, uh, this uh, culture that some of them believed that Jesus rose from the dead and some of them didn't. And some of them may have believed that maybe Jesus rose from the dead, but that was it. That's all that happens with the resurrection, nothing else. And so Paul's going to try and give a 57, 58 sentence concise theology on the resurrection. Here we go. <clears throat> Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, uh, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's like, okay, I'm going to remind you all what the most important things are. 
I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Any of you do Awana in the past? Anybody? A few people. This is an Awana verse for those of you who've never done Awana. Every child in Awana, um, approved workman. Uh, there we go. It's my Awana people. Um, uh, uh, must memorize this verse because it's the gospel. Um, and uh, it starts right there. For I delivered to you as of first importance. If I'm only going to tell you one thing, I'm going to tell you that Jesus died because Scripture said he would, that he uh, was buried, Scripture said he would, that he rose because Scripture said he would. It's all foretold, and he did it because God is who he says he is, and he does what he says he will do. Okay? This is the most important stuff, Paul said. And not only that he rose, but he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers at a single moment. Most of them who are still alive at the time Paul was writing this, though some have fallen asleep, which is a polite way of saying they're not taking a nap, they died. Okay? Um, and, uh, and so he is saying, listen, Jesus did what he said he was going to do. Um, he, he was buried, uh, he died, he rose again, and just so in case you were questioning, there are roughly 500 people you can go ask, because he appeared to all of them at one point in time, and, and, and we can go into a whole bunch of stuff about uh, theories about group hallucination and so forth and so on, uh, because people have those views, that it's a group hallucination, that didn't really happen, but we believe God, and... 500 people saw him at one time. And then, that's not enough, he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I have worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These, these, Paul's writing to the church and he's saying, listen, there is this overwhelming standard of evidence because he was walking and living and breathing and preaching this in the day where there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So if, if this is true, if you've talked to the people, why are you saying there is no resurrection? Why don't you believe, Paul said? Let's continue this vein of thought. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's saying, listen, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then why are you gathered together in church on Sunday or Wednesday or Tuesday? Why are you preaching Jesus if he's dead and he's done nothing for you? This is a reality. He wants them to wrestle. Why do you gather? Why do you preach? Why do you serve if not in the name of a risen Savior. Uh, we are even found to be misrepresenting God, if indeed he's not raised, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. It, it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. He's trying to unravel their logic here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they have actually perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is all there is, if this existence is all we have, if we are born and we live and we die, period, nothing after that, it's kind of a sad existence. It's a temporary life full of pain and suffering with no hope. And that's what he's saying the Corinthians believe. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, there is no hope of eternal life. There is nothing after this. There is no joy that we can hold on to. Is that really what we believe Paul wants the Corinthian church to wrestle with? But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died, right? We can just assume that's what that means from here on out. Um, when I was ordained, uh, I've been ordained twice, by the way, in two different denominations, uh, whatever that's worth. Um, so uh, when I was in my Southern Baptist days um, and I was uh, going through the process of ordination, uh, like all Bible-believing churches, they test someone who is going to be ordained. And it's not a written test. Uh, you sit before a board of elders and they grill you on your faith, your testimony, your everything. They want to know if you are a workman who can uh, really live out this calling. And one of the questions that they asked me was, what does it mean Christ is the first fruits of the dead? And I honestly didn't really understand how to answer that question. Um, and uh, I want to make sure that we understand the term first fruits, okay? Um, it's a harvest term. We don't live in a harvest-like community, right? I mean, we harvest salmon, but like, it's not really like the grain harvest that they're talking about, right? So um, the first fruit of a harvest is that first plucking, that first sample. It's a sample batch of the field to determine, is this a good quality what is the harvest going to look like this year? So the farmers would go into the field and they would at random take a sample and they would open up the whatever it was, the, the corn husks or the wheat husks or the grain or whatever they were growing, right? And they would look at it and go, is it moldy? Is it smaller than average? Is it really healthy looking? Does the insects eat it? You know, whatever. They would take a look, they would evaluate it. And based on that small sample, they would say, because of the first fruits, we can now look at the rest of the harvest and go, we're going to declare the rest of the harvest really healthy because of the first fruits. Or we're going to look at the first fruits and go, oh my goodness, this is not going to be a good year at all, okay? So based on the first fruits, the rest of the harvest quality would be determined. Does that make sense? The quality of the first fruit then becomes imbued to the rest of the harvest. Now this becomes important when we look at the rest of this passage here. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, right? Adam was the first man and through him entered sin. Thank you, Adam. The rest of us get that, right? By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That was Jesus. Now, as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. This means 
that Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead, the first of the harvest of God, right? Of all of the people who will be resurrected into the kingdom of God, Jesus was the first. And God looked at the first fruits and he said, this is going to be a good crop. This is going to be fantastic. This, this Jesus who was raised from the dead is impeccable in quality and holiness. He is perfect. And now I am going to look at everyone raised in Christ's name to be as in Christ's likeness. That means when we are raised from the dead, God looks at us and says, that's just like Jesus. You get all the qualities of Jesus, right? Everything that Jesus is, you get to be in terms of holiness and perfection at the resurrection. That's good news for us because we don't have that on our own. So uh, we need Jesus to be our first fruits. Then um, uh, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, this is an order here. First, Jesus is raised from the dead. Then when he comes back, all those who belong to Jesus will be raised from the dead. And then the end of all time at some undetermined period in the future that we don't get to know about, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, meaning at that point in time, at the end of time, when Jesus wraps things up with a bow and it's wonderful, there will only be one kingdom. There will only be one ruler. There will only be one king. There will only be one law. It is love. There will only be one, and it's Jesus, and everything will fall in submission to Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That happens at the end of the age. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And all means? All. Right? So there's nothing that will not be put in submission to Christ. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, right? So this is really good for us. Death will not hold us forever. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That means Jesus. Jesus is not put in subjection to himself. That, does that make sense? Right, okay. Um, when all things are subjected to him then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection to under him, that God may be all in all. Here's a, here's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. They are all equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, co-all-knowing, co-all-everything. They are all God. They are all the same substance. Beautiful Trinity, three gods in one. But they serve in deference to one another. There are times when God the Father does the action. The Son and the Holy Spirit take a back seat. There are times when the Holy Spirit takes an action in the life of a believer. He sanctifies us from the inside out. Jesus and the Father take a back seat. There are times, like the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross and the Father and the Spirit took a back seat. That doesn't change the fact that they are co-equal, co-eternal, co-everything together, all one God. But they sit in deference to one another. And in this moment, at the end of all time, there is a moment where Jesus submits himself again to God the Father so that God is all in all. It's when they sit back and go, it's done. It's so great. Look at this. It's amazing. Otherwise, what do people mean when being baptized on behalf of the dead? Anybody puzzled by this verse? Anybody struggle with this one? Yeah. Um, there are some faith systems in our world today that take this verse to mean something. 
Um, and so what they do is they baptize people like you know us in the name of someone who has died so that that person can have a retroactive post-death baptism. That's not what this verse means. Um, this verse is talking about baptism of people. We are dead in our sins. This is what this is talking about. We are being baptized as if we are dead people, right? Because we are dead. We are being baptized into the death of Jesus and coming out in the name of the living, resurrected Jesus. So when you were baptized, and hopefully as Christ followers, you've been baptized, and if you have not been baptized, please come talk to me. I would love to, we have a baptismal right behind the curtain, right? And so we would love to baptize you in obedience to Jesus. Um, people who are being baptized, he's saying, what good does that do if Jesus is not resurrected? Why would you get in the water and say, I'm going to bury myself and come back out? Eh? Why would, I, why would I voluntarily take a bath in front of people if there is, that's in essence, if, if it does not accomplish anything, if it is not being obedient to anything, if it is not a picture or a statement of my faith in something, why do we do this ritual of baptism where people who are dead in their sins are claiming the death and the resurrection of someone who might not have been dead or resurrected? He's saying, why do you do what you do? Think critically about your faith, is what he's saying. If dead people are not raised at all, then why are we being baptized? If Christ is not raised, why are we being baptized in his name? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then let us, eat, uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was a common phrase in Corinth. Let's just enjoy this life. Let's experience everything we have to experience because it doesn't matter. There's nothing after this. I better soak up all the worldly pleasures now because eventually I'm going to kick the bucket and I won't get to do that anymore. So let me experience everything life has to experience now before I croak, right? Um, this is what... Corinth was struggling with. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Some say, I have no knowledge of God. And I say this is to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What, what kind of body do they come with? You foolish person. And what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Again, harvest language right? You plant a seed, that seed actually dies and ceases to exist so that the life within the seed can grow. Um, when, when, when something goes into the ground and is planted, that seed actually has to decay so that the life within the seed can sprout and grow. The seed no longer exists and behold, something new happens and life takes root. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. It's a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or, or some other grain. Here he is explaining to them in plain terms. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. So like you plant an apple seed and you get a apple tree, right? You plant a pumpkin seed and you get a pumpkin, not a pumpkin tree. Okay, <laughs> right? Um, you, you plant corn kernel and you get 
corn stalk, right? Oh, you guys are so good at this, right? When God plants the seed of faith in you and it takes root, you become a Christ follower, right? You are not what you were anymore. Behold, the old has gone away and the new has come. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and each kind of seed to its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for human, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, another kind for fish. God is endlessly created. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Okay? There are the things that are tangible in this world, and we know them very well. But there are heavenly bodies, things that we have not seen yet. If God peeled back the veil just for the faintest moment and let us see what was on the other side, I think our brains would explode, right? And, and, and maybe even literally, I don't know. Because I do not think that our, the way we are made in this flesh sack that we have, right? I don't know if we can fully comprehend all that is to come. Because if we could, it would not say in scripture, you don't get to know that. It's not good for you to know that. Your brains will explode. That's my translation. Um, but, but there's a reason God put limits on the tree of the fruit of knowledge and life and all of these things. Because we had to just, we're, we're finite beings. And there will come a day when our finite will become eternal. right? And then we will begin to understand a little more. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. We are distinctly different now than we will be. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for a star differs from a star in its glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, right? God planted some seed of life in me. I'm alive. This is great. I love it. But what is raised is imperishable. Sorry. <laughs> but what is raised is imperishable this will not be this when I meet Jesus this will be slightly different I don't know how Okay. it is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory we are conceived in sin right? this is what scripture tells us that's how we all get original sin but when we are raised we'll be raised in glory in the likeness and the image of the first fruits which is Christ it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown in a natural body but is raised in a spiritual body if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body he's contrasting what is now but what will come right? so um, dishonor versus glory Right? We'd rather have glory, right? Um, weakness versus power. Oh, I want that body of power, right? Don't we? Because in that means there's no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sadness, all of that stuff. It's all gone. Um, but when we have that spiritual body, it will be completely different. It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Adam just means man, the last man, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, it is the natural. The spiritual follows. The first man was from the earth, literally a man of dust, right? Adam was formed a pile of dust by the hands of God, shaped like Plato into the shape of a man. Whew, 
Jesus breathed his Holy Spirit and he had life. The second man came from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. We will eventually become like Christ. Just as we have been born of the image of man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We can't get to heaven like this. There has to be a work in our life, and we can't do that work on our own. We need the work of God in our life to do that. And the only way that happens is if that which is flesh became imperishable. That which was Jesus became glorified. That which was dead broke through the barrier of death, which none of us can do except Jesus, and became alive and led us to that. It says in Scripture that... Um, he, uh, that Jesus uh, broke through death and led the captives out the other side. Um, one of, one of um, the preachers that I heard a couple years back at a district assembly said that Jesus punched a hole through death and made a way for us to walk right through. I think that's such a visual image. I just absolutely love that. Jesus, I love an image of strong Jesus, right? Like um, victorious Jesus, not, you know... Um, wimpy, long-haired um, Jesus. Um, I like the idea of a Jesus who says, there's nothing that can overcome me, and the things that cause you to be hindered, I will demolish in the name of love. I absolutely love that. So he punched a hole through death, let us out on the other side. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Perishable uh, does not inherit the imperishable, which means we will become imperishable. So this is my favorite part. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul's like, listen, I know this is, I know it sounds crazy. I know it's hard to wrap your brain around. I know you're going to struggle with this. I know that your finite little brains are going to have a hard time always understanding the infinite thing that is the resurrection. But here's the mystery. We're not all going to die. Not every one of us is going to die, but we all shall be changed. Not every single one of us is going to die. Some of us will just be new body, uh, right? And that's mind-blowing. I don't know how that works. Paul didn't know how that works. We just know that it works. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, Whew, right? And then those who are alive will also be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbor, or knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Right? Does anyone feel overwhelmed by that entire chapter? I read it and read it and read it and feel a little overwhelmed by it. There's a lot in there. Um, let's just handle it in three simple sentences. 
Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Can I get an amen? Right? Um, So, Jesus, flawless. Son of God, son of man. The two natures distinctly united together in a 200% being. Fully God, fully man, lived on earth, sinless, dealed with stubbed toes and hurt feelings and struggles and hurts just like we do, but yet fully God went to the cross in our place for our sins, died, literally died, because you cannot be crucified and not die. It just doesn't work that way. It is meant to kill you. It is the most horrible way to die. They didn't talk about it in polite society because it was so bad. And not just that he was crucified, but before he was crucified, they really laid it to him more than they did other people. More than other criminals, they really socked it to him so that when they whipped him, they actually ripped flesh off down to the bone. He was bleeding out. He was really going to die, right? It is amazing he lived to the cross based on what they did to him, okay? Um, and then he, he died. He really died on the cross, and he died not from loss of blood, but he died from suffocation. Um, this is how you die on the cross. You, you, you um, are nailed in such a way that your physical weight <coughs> presses down on your lungs. And so the only way you can breathe is with your feet nailed together, you push upward to get a breath in. Um, and so eventually you suffocate as um, water uh, kind of swells up around the heart and you begin to either struggle with a heart attack or pressure on the lungs and you cannot breathe and then you die. So crucifixion, you do not live. Like you, it's a, it's a horrible death. He died, he really did. And then they buried him because that's what you do with dead people. You bury them. Um, and so he was buried in a tomb. Um, and then uh, three days later, a, a really weird thing happened. Um, uh, Mary went to the tomb uh, to, 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 to take some anointing spices and oils to, in an act of worship and sadness and grief and, um, and all of the sadness that she had she carried to the tomb. But it was the funniest thing that happened that day. Um, the tomb was open and um, he wasn't in there anymore. And that doesn't happen with dead people. Um, and so as she was panicking about where her Lord's body has gone, there was this guy that she thought was the gardener. Um, and she said, where have you taken his body? I just, just tell me, I'm not gonna tell the cops. I just wanna know so I can go retrieve him and, and deal with his body appropriately. And he turned to her and he said her name. She immediately knew it was Jesus. It was the tone of voice she used. he used. And then she ran back to the disciples. The first person to ever tell the good news of the gospel of the resurrection of Christ was a woman. She ran back and she said, you'll never, you'll never believe what just happened. Jesus is alive. And then Peter and John were like, what? And they went running. When they got to the tomb, one of them was like, I don't know if I can go in and look. And the other was like, I'm totally going in and looking. Different personalities. And they came to wrestle with the fact that Jesus wasn't there. And then Jesus appeared to them. And then to the 500. And then to a handful of other disciples. And then to Paul. He was like, I'm alive, guys. I'm not dead. Jesus is alive right now. Like he didn't re-die. He's still alive. He only had to die once for all people, for all time. And when he died, all of our sins died with him, right? 
Um, so Jesus is alive. It's foundational to what we believe as Christ followers. If we do not believe that Jesus died and rose, we are not Christians, okay? Jesus is alive. We celebrate that on Easter. Now, the second thing that Paul dealt with was the resurrection of the dead, people who died, like literally died already. Everybody who's died already. The people who are not living. Does this make sense? <laughs> we are alive. Other people have died. Let's talk about the dead people, okay? Um, this is where it starts to get, you start to have to stretch your mind like a little taffy stretch, right? Like, go with Jesus on this one. The dead will be raised, right? Do you know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, there was a big earthquake, right? It's in scripture. Um, There's a big earthquake. Tombs were opened and the dead rose that day. A lot of pastors don't preach that, that section because it's really hard to, just, it's just a challenge. When we're like, wait, what? Dead people came back to life when Jesus came back to life? Well, yeah, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And there was an immediate celebration among the dead people who got life again in that moment. And they were walking around and people were like, Aunt Bertha, you were dead. And she's like, yeah, but Jesus is alive and now I'm alive. That's how it went on the day of the resurrection. Dead people came back to life and dead people will come back to life in total. There was a sampling on that day. All of the dead people who have died in faith, and if you want to know what that means, read Hebrews chapter 11, the, the passage, the hall of faith, where it says, um, Moses in faith, Abraham in faith, Isaac in faith, all the people in faith who hadn't even met Jesus, but loved Jesus in faith, trusted God in faith. They're going to be raised to an imperishable body one day. Okay? The order of resurrection, Jesus first, then the dead people, and then the living people. That'd be us, resurrection of the body. There will come a day when all of the living people will, in the twinkling of an eye, meet with Jesus. We don't know when that is. We don't know how it will be. We don't know anything about that other than it will happen. In faith, we believe. And that this body that we have will become imperishable. No more sniffles. No more catch a can crud. People, can I get an amen? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, right? No more Alzheimer's. Right? No more illness of any kind. No more stub toes. Right? Yeah. No more hurt feelings. No more tears. The body that we will get will not be this. I know what I want it to be. I don't know what Jesus will do with it. Okay? <laughs> You all know what I'm talking about. You all have your own thoughts too. You know, it's not, I'm not the only one. We will get an imperishable body that will last for an eternity. And we will meet with Jesus. So whether we have died or whether we are alive when Jesus comes, comes back to wrap things up, there will be a grand resurrection. What, how, and when? I don't even know that you need to worry about it right? A lot of people spend their time trying to decipher the code of what, how, when. It's going to happen. We take that in faith. Jesus is who he says he is. He does what he says he will do. Let's just live the hope of the resurrection now, right? So we have this hope that one day we will have eternity. And so we live with that hope. We 
change our lives according to that hope. We know that there is something greater than what is, which means when we live our life, we don't get to get caught up in the small things. The, the things, uh, how is it written? Um, this uh, temporary suffering, momentary affliction, that's how it's phrased in scripture. This momentary affliction is producing for you a weight of glory. Everything that you experience now is a blip on the radar of time. Because when we are with Christ for an eternity, all of that will make sense. Right? Jesus. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe all of Siri will start talking to us. Jesus is coming back in 30 seconds. Right? Prepare yourself. We don't know how it's going to happen. But we know Jesus is coming back, and that changes how we live. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to own the idea of the resurrection, to live in that truth. Because it changes your perspective on everything. If this is all we have right now, life is pretty depressing. But if what Jesus has promised us is an actual reality, life is so much better. What we have to offer people is so much better. We can offer that which we first received, that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again according to scriptures and will come again one day. Amen? Um, the worship team is going to come and sing. And we have communion available. Um, I think what I'm going to do is just take the couple boxes of communion and just kind of spread them out. This is a meal that declares Jesus died in our place for our sins. And it declares that when we partake it, we believe that that death was enough for our sins, enough to purchase us back from darkness, enough to punch a hole through death and lead us to life. So as you are ready you can come partake. So there'll be availability, multiple lines. Come and partake when you are ready to live the life of the resurrection. And if you have never believed that Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and this may be the first meal that you get to say, I'm actually not sure I fully understand it because I'm not sure that any of us fully do, but I believe it. I want to believe it. And the greatest prayer in scripture is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Amen. So let God work in you today through prayer, through worship, and through the receiving of communion as the worship team leads. Lord, um, you have lived and died and lived again. I want that to be the story of my life. I want that truth to be what changes how I live. Would you help me live a resurrected hope? Would you help me live a life that leads people to see you as alive today? Would, would you help me understand the ununderstandable in a way that brings glory to you and hope to the world around us? We submit our lives to you now as we worship you. And we ask that you would work in us in a way that is fresh and new. And we pray this in your name. Amen.